So this time, the children are dismissed for children's church. If you are in that demographic, you are allowed to, to leave up through, I think, grade four. The rest of us, uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. We are in John chapter 15 today, working our way through the farewell discourse within the Gospel of John. It is Jesus speaking to the disciples as He's getting ready to depart and go to the cross. And I got to say that this is probably one of the sweetest passages in all of the Gospels, maybe in all of Scripture. And as we read this, you may have read this many, many times, but it should actually cause your head to explode. Not literally, but you know, spiritually, okay? It should cause us to go, wow, like this is amazing. Because when we think about the friendship of God, that God and Jesus calls us friend, what does that mean for us? I think about um, friendships in our own life, and oftentimes they, they image what we are called to have with Jesus. I have a friend, David, um, David Dixon, who is a, now a retired pastor. And when I go back to Virginia, he is there. He actually retired from, from gospel ministry. He's about uh, 70 years old, almost. And now he is full-time teaching Bible at a Christian school. And when I go back to Virginia, I always like getting together with David because he's my friend. And I love him dearly. And one of the things that happened about three or four weeks ago is when I went back, I said, David, come on, let's, there's a trail around our house in Smithfield. Why don't we come walk the trail? And as we walked, we walked about five miles that day, and we walked together, and we were going by the river, and we were through the woods, and we were speaking to one another about life's joys and difficulties, asking for prayer and praying for one another, expressing our fears and failures. And it is an intimate thing to express your failings to one another. We, we express honest, heartfelt wrestling with our sins and the difficulties of being a husband, of being a father, of being in ministry, of being a pastor, all of those things. And the thing about David that I love is that I can always call David and say, David, would you pray for me? Things have gone really, really difficult, or I've had a hard day. And David will stop and he will pray. And he'll do the same thing for me. Even this, this past week, um, he texted me and said, hey, I've been praying for you. Would you please pray this scripture for me? And there's a, there's a deep intimacy in, again, sharing the, the failures and the difficulties and the longings of our soul. It's similar, um, and I hope all of you have friends like that, but it's similar to David and Jonathan when they had a similar sort of friendship, whereas, you know, in, in 1 Samuel verse 18, it says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, I think that that image of friendship is something that we're supposed to have and, and pursue, but there's also this aspect of friendship that occurs within John 15. In John 15, uh, let me, let me, let's read the text today. Uh, we're in the midst of, of this section where we're talking about abiding in Christ. Again, two weeks ago, we talked about what does abide mean? Abide means to remain, rest, and rejoice in Christ, to be connected to, to Jesus. And again, if, if you are connected to Jesus, you will bear much fruit, but apart from Jesus and being connected to Him, you can do nothing. And what we find in, in beginning in verse 7 of John 15, let me read it, I'll read it all the way through verse 17. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
By this is my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. And we all say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So think about this in verse 13, 14, and 15. This will frame everything that we're doing. 13, 14, and 15, Jesus, the Lord of the universe, goes to the disciples and he's speaking this to us right now. And he says this, he goes, you are my friends. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And at this point, the disciples are like, well, who, are the, who is that? And he says, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. I've called you friends. I want you to think about that. I mean, that's, that's hard to believe. Now, if I told you that I had a friend and his name was Patty and that he lives in Kansas City, and that oftentimes me and Patty get together and, and we like to throw the football together. And he likes to talk to me about, you know, game plans and, and how he's going to win the Super Bowl again and where to put his MVP trophies. And, and we, we share things and I share scripture with him. And, you know, and that, that merry-go-round play that they did last year, that was actually from me. You know, we were there kind of working on that. You would go, that's, that's not true. And you're right. You know, like I, I, don't, I don't have a friend named Patty and he's not in Kansas City, but I have a friend who's greater than Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, we have a friend that we're called to be in intimate relationship with, and his name is Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. The, the God of the universe, the incarnate God of the universe, says that we are his friends. So how does friendship with Jesus, how do we become friends of Jesus? Well, the, the problem that we have is that we are not naturally God's friends. Not naturally. In our own sinfulness, we are not naturally the friends of God. But rather, we are actually said to be the enemies of God. In, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now, our, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by life. As a matter of fact, as, as we, we think about this, this idea comes across in verse 16. It doesn't say that we were capable of actually choosing God, but it says this. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So this idea of Jesus saying, there wasn't anything intrinsically good about who you were or who you are, but rather as being an enemy of God, I have chosen you and I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
You see, naturally to ourselves, we are the enemies of God, and yet in, the, in this divine choosing, and, and I don't want you to get your, your mind wrapped around or twisted around the sovereignty of God, because the sovereignty of God does not annul the responsibility of man, and yet here in the midst of this, it's meant to be this wonderful promise to us, meaning this, like we don't have to feel like we have to earn or to live up to, but rather through his grace and his love, he has loved us and appointed to us, appointed for us salvation. Now, in the midst of this, you know, we, we see that what does Jesus do for us? We, we sang it. You know, he has washed us by his blood. He washes us clean. He saves us. He justifies us. He declares us righteous. There's this, this cleansing of sin that, that Jesus does in the midst of our salvation. And he cleanses us with his blood and, and so that we are clean. And that, that blood represents this idea of, of sacrifice, this idea of, of sacrifice and substitution. We think about this also that the penalty for our sin has been paid for. This penalty, we, we call this justification. It's a judicial act whereby we are declared righteous before God because of all that he has done for us. But there's also this idea of redemption, that, that this, this judicial uh, declaration comes at a cost, and it comes at the cost of Jesus. And Jesus says, I've laid down my life for you. Brothers and sisters, when we think about how we are made the friends of God, it is through the sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf. How do you become the friend of God? By believing and trusting in Jesus. Again, he says in verse 12 or 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus does. Now, there's a, a story I'll refer to this. It's in a, in a book called Miracle on the River Kwai. Now, many of you have heard of the, the, the movie, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Um, I mean, nobody, like, if, if you're over 50, you've probably heard of it, okay? Uh, you probably haven't heard of it, but there, there's, this, there's this bridge that was being built. And, and really, uh, but this is a true story. Um, he tells the true story. Ernest Gordon, who was actually the chaplain at Princeton, who was a Scotsman, who was actually a prisoner of war in World War II, and he, um, and he tells the story of a group of POWs, prisoners of war, who were working on the infamous Burma Railway during World War II. And, and in the midst of this story, one of the Japanese soldiers demanded, um, he, he began to shout. He came up to this work crew, and he began to shout at all of the workers, and because one of the shovels was missing. You see, at the end of the day, all of the prisoners had to bring their shovel and they had to present it back to all of the Japanese guards because the guards didn't want them to have any tools or utility to escape from prison. And so this, this guard had counted and there was one shovel missing. And so he comes up to the group of men who are weary, malnourished, and are working themselves to death. And he, and he goes up to them and he began to rant and rave, working himself up into a paranoid fury and ordered whoever was guilty to step forward. And no one moved. So he begins to shout, all die, all die, he shrieked, cocking and aiming his rifle at the prisoners. And at that moment, one man stepped forward and the guard clubbed him to death with his rifle while he stood silently to attention. And when they returned to camp, the tools were counted again and no shovel was missing. 
That anonymous soldier sacrificed his life so that his companions could live. That's what we see here. We think about that being the ultimate sacrifice when we, when we think about that, but really what Jesus does is the same thing for us. He takes our sin upon himself. He knew no sin. He was sinless, but he takes it upon ourselves so that we might live. You see, the only way that we can become the friends of God is through Jesus, the Son, You see, it's not enough only that our sins are even paid for. You see, in the gospel message, it's even greater than that. Uh, Let me me read this story from Mike McKinley, a pastor in D.C. He says this. He says, imagine that you are called into the court of a good and powerful king. You're not looking forward to the experience because you have been an outlaw and a traitor your whole life. You have violated his laws and been an enthusiastic member of a rebel group and has sought to overthrow the crown. You have no legitimate defense and no reason to hope for mercy, but when you appear for trial, you are stunned to discover that the king loves you and has decided to punish his beloved son in your place. As a result, you are declared innocent and treated as if you were were a perfectly faithful subject of the king. But there's more. Because the king also has the power to change your heart. So he takes away your insane and suicidal desire to rebel against him and replaces it with love and loyalty. Because of the king's love for you, demonstrated clearly in the gift of his son, you never have to worry about finding yourself on the wrong end of the law again. That's more than you can ever reasonably expect or demand, right? If that king merely let you go about your life from that point on, you would owe him your love and gratitude forever. But that's not all. That's not all that this king has in store for you. It's not enough for him to restore you to your status as a law-abiding citizen because he ends your trial by declaring he has adopted you into his family. You are no longer a criminal. You are not even a subject anymore. Instead, you are now a child of the king. You can see how this is the greatest blessing and honor that could possibly be bestowed upon you rebel and outlaw, pardoned by the blood of Jesus, a renewed heart, and then he adopts you into the family of God, and he welcomes you with open arms. Think about that. That's the story of my salvation and yours. From rebel to child, beloved son and daughter of the Most High King. Now, but Jesus, now let me go back to this idea of friendship. This idea of friendship that that frames this. Jesus not only loves us, like some of us get that, right? Like we get it in the gospel, we get it in our minds, but Jesus also delights in us. I want you to think about this. John Owen argues in his book, Communion with God, he says, Christ delights exceedingly in his saints. And he presses this image home in this way. He presses this image, he goes, in the same way that a bridegroom sees his bride coming, he goes from Song of Solomon chapter 3, verse 11, 
where it says, go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown, with his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. And in Isaiah chapter 62, it's talking about this, this bridegroom is revealed. In the same way that the bride looks with delight upon his bride, the groom looks with delight upon the bride as the doors are flung open, as she walks down, that is the way that Jesus loves and delights in us. He delights in us with great joy. Now, the struggle with this The struggle with this is because of our sin and the weakness of our faith, it can be hard for us to believe that Jesus really feels this way about us. As a result, we may find ourselves keeping our emotional distance from him, fearing that if we come to him, we will experience not delight, but disapproval. Have you ever felt that way, brothers and sisters? That you can't come so clear to Jesus, come so close to Jesus because you're worried about his disapproval. Now, as we think about that, um, Owen, John Owen describes it like this. In order to help convince us, um, one proof out of many of Christ's delight is this: is that he has told us his thoughts and enables us to tell him ours. You can see that how that's a sign that Jesus really does view us with joy and love, right? You see, he's sharing his deepest thoughts with us. He's telling us intimate secrets. Now, let me illustrate that from verse 15 of John chapter 15. Look at what he says. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. And get this, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So what the Father has imparted to Jesus in terms of the way that we are to live, the way that we are to love, the way that we, the promises of God come upon us, Jesus tells us these things. You see, Jesus calls us a friend, and one of the intimate ways that he actually is a friend is he reveals himself to us. But not only does he reveal himself, he reveals the Father's love for us. You see, not only do we become the friend of Jesus, we become the friend of God. We see that in Psalm chapter 25. Those who believe in his covenant at the very beginning of the worship service, those we we are referred to as his friends. The love of God through the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ allows us to be intimate with God and Jesus, and he delights in us. Now, he says, no longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. He wants us to know him, and he wants us to feel that he knows us. That's why he sent his spirit, so that through his word, we might have the mind of Christ. You know, again, John Owen says this. He says, he then communicates his mind unto his saints and them only, his mind, the counsel of his love, the thoughts of his heart, the purposes of his bosom for our eternal good. There is not anything in the heart of Christ wherein these his friends are concerned that he does not reveal to them all his love, his goodwill, the secrets of his covenant, the paths of obedience, the mystery of faith is told to them. Now think about that. Like, think about if, if 
Um, when somebody writes you a letter, I don't mean an email or a text or a Twitter, but I mean actually takes the time to write a handwritten letter that comes through snail mail. It doesn't happen very often, does it? But when somebody that you love writes you a letter, you open it and you read it with great joy. Now, when we have the word of God in front of us, every time you open your Bible, it is a letter from your friend, Jesus. And he's teaching you in the midst of this letter the promises of God, the pathways of obedience, the love of God, the grace of Jesus, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He is revealing all of those things, and as we open it, we read it with great joy. This friendship with God. But let me, let me ask you this question, because um, I think it's perplexing. If you re- look back between 7 and, and verse 17, there are a few things that you see um, that, that have to do with the commandments of God. And so how do the commandments of God work into the friendship of God? Okay? Because I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of friends that command me to do things. I mean, like, it's almost like you have... Um, I always think it's funny when when you play with like small children who are like maybe between like maybe three and four, like you love them, but they pretty much boss you around, you know? They don't boss their parents around, but they boss like other friends around. Like, we're going to play this and you're going to sit there and I'm going to bring you this because this is my game and you must do what I obey. And because these children are cute and, you know, if if you're not their parents, you only have to spend like maybe 10, 15 minutes with them. You just kind of, you know, humor them, right? But in this... There's something about the commands of God. When, when, look, at, look at what we see here. It says in verse 10, it says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So there's this aspect of love, love from the Father in the Son, that if we obey his commandments, we will be there, just as he has kept the commandments. Now there's this, also this idea in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says in verse 14, if you, if you, you are my friends, if this, you do what I command you. And in verse 17, it says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. There's this idea of the command of God, and and as believers, we're to obey. So how does that work itself out? Well, we think about this, um, certainly faithful friends, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6 says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What does that mean? It means that there are times when you have true friends, true friends like my friend David, who I would take walks with, when I am in error, my friend David will actually tell me that I'm wrong. He will actually say, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now David wounds me in such a way to correct me and guide me along. In the same way, Jesus does the same thing with his commandments, with his ways, with his precepts. We also see this in in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 4, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Now, when Jesus shows up, when we think about this in John chapter 1, he was incarnate wisdom. So every time we look at Proverbs, Jesus is the embodiment of all that is true with regard to wisdom. Now, the commands of God, the commands of God are meant so that we will have a relationship and intimacy with God. All the commandments, all the commandments that you see in the Old Testament and the New, everything that Jesus asks you to do is meant to deepen your intimacy with the Father and the Son working itself out through the Holy Spirit. So think about that. 
Every commandment that is there is meant to bring about a relational restoration and intimacy and communion with the God of the universe. Let me read this for a second. Instead, our great responsibility is to pursue a relationship with God the Father in his love. What that means is that everything we have been thinking about in terms of having a friendship with God where he loves you and you love him in return, you are not free to take or leave. It's not an optional program for God's children. Instead, it is your solemn obligation to pursue and enjoy fellowship with him. Now, I understand why this might sound like bad news to you. We tend to think of duty and obligation in negative terms. It is my duty to pay my taxes every year. I am obligated to take my car for a safety inspection every 12 months. Again, I'm referring to Mike McKinley here. He says, none of those things bring me the slightest fragment of joy. Anybody here write their tax check and go, this is great. This is wonderful. I'm so excited to write this big check to Uncle Sam every year. And he knows you, but, but it's the duty, right? So there's no joy in this. Or like personal property tax or whatever taxes come in, right? Like any tax that comes in, you just kind of grumble and complain. At least I do. Okay, you can pray for me. Um, But I'm pretty sure you do as well. None of these things bring me the slightest fragment of joy. I would happily be released from those requirements for the rest of my life. But if you think about it, we also have a category for duties that are pleasant or even lovely. For example, there is a very real way that being my daughter's father means I'm obligated to attend her college graduation. But that isn't a tiresome chore. It will be a source of great joy. In the same way, my relationship with my son means that I must attend the play in which he is acting in a lead role. But it is hardly a burden. I'll have a giant smile on my face the whole time. Our friendship with God is meant to be that kind of duty. Get at this. One that fills us with life and joy a duty and an obligation that fills us with life and joy. But maybe if you're being honest, the idea doesn't really conjure up a lot of excitement and delight in your heart. I know I find myself in that place sometimes. Well, if it's any encouragement to you, he cites John Owen here. John Owen writes this, he says, this is a duty wherein it is most evident that Christians are but little exercised. This is what he means. That we have a very, um, I guess, we just don't know how to do it. That there's no exercise within our souls to delighting in the duty and the obedience of the Lord. Namely, in holding immediate communion with the Father in love. Why is that the case? And again, I'm quoting Owen. Why is that that we find ourselves so easily excited about things that will bring us joy only for a moment? But we sometimes find ourselves relatively unmoved by our relationship with God the Father. It is very likely that we place too much value on those short-term pleasures. But the bigger problem is that we don't really understand how amazing it is to enjoy a relationship with the Father. Owen describes it in this way. He says, unacquaintedness with our mercies, our privileges, is our sin as well as our trouble. This makes us go heavily when we might rejoice and be weak where we might be strong in the Lord. If you find yourself less than thrilled by your duty to enjoy your relationship with God, Owen would say that your biggest problem 
is that you do not understand the mercies and privileges that are yours as the Father's beloved child. He likens it in this way. Have you ever seen a child, a small child, open up a box and you're so excited about the present that you've given to them? But instead of playing with the present that you gave them, they begin to play with the bow and the wrapping paper and the box that it's in. I think all of us have probably experienced that at some level, whether you're a child or whether you're an adult or you're giving the child. And what we're saying there is that we begin to play with the paper and the box rather than enjoying the present that the Lord God has meant for us. And so what we need is to redirect our eyes away from the shell to the beauty of Christ. So what do you do with that toddler who ignores the gift in order to play with the glittery ribbon? You draw their attention to the gift. You show them how great it is and give them a sense of all the things that they can do with it. You help them experience the joy of the gift he has received. That's what John Owen is trying to do for us. He takes us by the hand and helps us to delight in all that we have in our friendship with the Father. That's what he wants us to understand. And in a similar way, when we read John 15, that's what Jesus is trying to get across to us, to delight in the duty and the commands of God because they're meant to bring refreshment to our souls. They are a duty and an obligation, but we are meant to do them with a smile on our face because of all the mercies and privileges that we have as a child of God a relationship with the Father and the Son sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, our union with Christ, let me me differentiate these two things. Our union with Christ is something that we think about with regard to our justification. That we are joined to Christ, we are declared righteous, it is a one-time act. But our communion with Christ, our communion with Christ is something that is ongoing and is meant to be a daily exercise. We are meant to to rejoice then. So what does it look like for us to live out this communion with Jesus in our daily life? When we sit down to pray in our living rooms or at our kitchen tables. Well, here's what he has to say. Before we can do this, there's there's actually this this threefold idea. So this is applying this, okay? How do you, like, so, so for me, how do I apply the communion of Jesus in my life? How do I do that? Well, Owen talks about three different ways in his book, Communion with Christ, and I think it's really, really helpful for here, for us to think about. It's first, you come and you, you have a deep sense of your own sinfulness. Before we can really experience the peaks of joy that friendship with Jesus brings, we must first take a deep dive into the guilt of our own sin. This is something that we ought to do every day. We must keep in mind that fact that we can never stand before God on the basis of anything good in us. Nothing we have done or will ever do can make us right with him. Remembering this will help us grow in humility and in a sense, in a sense of dependence on God's mercy. You see, we're called to, to come with your burdens. Again, Owen says, come with your burdens. Come, you poor soul, with your guilt and sin. And Jesus says, this is mine. So as a believer in Christ, you look at the depths of your sinfulness every day, and then you come to the cross of Jesus, and then you lay it at his feet. And Jesus says, all of these 
putrid rags, all of these filthy works that you have, I take them. The first is that you acknowledge the depths of your own sinfulness. The second part is that then you give them to Jesus. First, you acknowledge your sin, and then secondly, you take them to the cross of Christ every day. And then, and then this is what he, he says, you, you You lay down your sins at the cross of Christ upon his shoulders. This is faith's great and bold venture upon the grace, faithfulness, and truth of God to stand by the cross and say, ah, he is bruised for my sins and wounded for my transgressions and the chastisement of my peace is upon him. He has thus made sin for me. Here I give up my sins to him that he is able to bear them, to undergo them. He requires it of my hands that I should be content that he should undertake them for me and that I heartily consent unto What he's basically saying is, I give it all to Jesus. And what do we give to Jesus? All of our sins. Everything we have. We just give them to Jesus, and Jesus says, I will take them, I will bear them for you. And I delight in helping you. And then, the third thing, the third thing that we do, and the final step in this drama of communion that is meant for us every day, is for, for the believer to take hold of the righteousness that Jesus offers. Owen calls it the blessed bartering and exchange of faith. And as a result, when we take upon the righteousness of Christ, that is an alien righteousness that comes from Jesus and has no part in and of ourselves, we know that we can be a child of God. We acknowledge our sin, we give it to Jesus, and then he gives back to us his righteousness. And when we do that every day, every day, we commune with Jesus and God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to do. Acknowledge our sin, give it to Jesus. In a similar way, it's like this. Um, In our neighborhood, oftentimes we take our golden retriever, and this is going to be a totally imperfect analogy. I'm kind of making it up on the fly. Here we go. All right. So in the midst of this trip, uh, this, this walk around the, the neighborhood with our dog, invariably the dog has to go to the bathroom, you know? And so we have these little bags that we, you know, grab, you know, what, what the dog offers us, and we carry that around until we are able to get rid of it, you know? Uh, and usually there's, there's a garbage can over by Quail Run Elementary that we're able to put it in, and we're always happier when the dog does his business closer to the trash can than further away, Right? But, but all of a sudden, we're, carrying, we're literally carrying a bag of dog poop around the neighborhood with us, right? And then we are so glad that we get to give it away, right? But it's, and this is where the analogy breaks down. This is where it breaks down, right? Because at that receptacle, we don't get anything, Right? If, I were to, if this were a true analogy, I would give this in the receptacle, and the receptacle would spit out a gold bar and go, this is what you get for the bag of dog poop that you give me. That's what happens when we commune with the Father daily. We give him our sin. Jesus takes it upon us, and then he gives us his righteousness, and he puts it on us so that we know that we are saved. Now, why does he do all of that? Why does he do all of that? Well, he does all of that, and I'm, I know I'm running out of time, but it is what it is. Um, he does all of that when you, when you look at this idea of bearing fruit. 
In verse 16, it says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. In verse 8, it says, but by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. Now, in the midst of our friendship with God and obedience to the commands of God, that, that we are now a friend of God through his love, we are a friend of Jesus through his grace, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit so that we might bear good fruits glorifying God. That's what happens. And in the midst of that, here's what it says. In the midst of all of that, of abiding in him, obeying him, friendship with God, it says in verse um, 11, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see, the, the idea of obedience and friendship and abiding is meant to well up within our souls this great expression of joy that that, is, that, that the world cannot match. And when we do that, when this joy is pouring out of us like streams of living water, it will produce great, great works. You see, what is the goal of our obedience and friendship with the Father through the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit? It is joy, unescapable, spirit-empowered joy. For what purpose? so that God would be glorified and my acts of service fueled, fueled by this inescapable joy. So here's the question. Does this joy well up within you and flow out of you? And if it does, praise the Lord. And there are times when it doesn't and you have to ask yourself, am I not obeying the Lord? Am I not his friend? Am I not communing with him? Are my works weak? Let me conclude with this story. I, I mentioned uh, the book by Ernest Gordon, Miracle on the River Kwai. It was an amazing read as we saw people again and again come to faith in the midst of a POW camp. But I want you to think about this. Um, think about this. These are prisoners of war who have, been, who have witnessed the saving grace of Jesus. And this, this whole prisoner of war camp was going through this revival, what was happening. Malnourished, punished, you know, brutally punished, and they were coming to faith in Jesus as they served one another. Here's the, let me, let me read for you just a section. Ernest Gordon, who at that point was not a pastor, but would later, you know, in, in the 30s, or the 40s and 50s, become a, a chaplain at Princeton. He says, I realized again I was witnessing saving grace in action. More and more, men began to help one another. The less sick cared for the more sick. The few who could walk fetched water and gave baths to dying men. We began to lose the bitterness toward our ruthless captors. When we prayed, forgive them as you forgive us, we were released from hatred and given a new love and freedom. All this came to a head when during one of the brutal marches, we came across wounded Japanese soldiers left by their own on the sides of the road to die in their pain and filth. And without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their sacks, took their rations and rag with a water canteen in hand, went over to the Japanese to care for them. I regarded my comrades with wonder. 18 months ago, they would have readily joined in the destruction of our captors had they fallen into our hands. Now these same men were dressing the enemy's wounds. We had experienced the grace of Christ and the power of God to break the barriers of prejudice and hate. We experienced the wonder of the kingdom of God and we began to see his grace in action among us. That is this idea of, you know, this, this 
obedience and friendship with the Father, this unescapable spirit-empowered joy bringing about good works. I remember he closed this book in this way. He said it like this. He said, when we were liberated, when we were liberated in the midst of uh, World War II and the soldiers came to our prison camp, what happened was all the soldiers came and they began to put the, um, put the captors, um, and they began to, to line them up and those men, those POWs who had been brutally attacked and, 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 and just malnourished, they stood between the soldiers who were liberating them and their captors in between the gunfire. And they said, do not shoot these men, but rather forgive them for the sake of Christ. When we think about communion with the Father, we see that our obedience to Him is not a burden, but it is a joy, and it leads to more joy. You know, what we have in front of us is, is we call this the communion table, whereby the, the Spirit of Christ is present, whereby God pours forth grace upon grace upon His people. When we think about this bread, it is said in 1 Corinthians 11 that it, it is broken. This is Jesus' body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Him. And this cup represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, as often as you take this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what we do in the midst of this is we commune with the Father. We reestablish our friendship with him. And we love him. This is not the table of Grace Presbyterian Church, but rather it is the table of the Lord. And he invites all those who are his friends to come and partake. If you're a friend of Christ, then he welcomes you. If you're not sure that you're a friend of Christ, then we have elders after the service that they would love to speak to you about what it means to be a friend of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I, I pray, Lord, that you would bless this table. And it would be a table of great friendship and that we would know that we are friends of Jesus, friends of the Father, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and that you have called us to works of obedience so that our joy might be full, that, that you might be glorified. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we take these elements, that we would rejoice in Christ and that we would find sustenance for our souls. So, Father, as we come, may we know that this friendship with Jesus had a high cost, the cost of your Son. And Father, I pray, Lord, that daily we would seek to commune with you. Father, help us. Save us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.